we are going to start our passage in Mark 14. And before we look at the first verses together, we're going to take a moment and just look at the literary context of where this passage falls. Because there's some things that are happening. It's important for us to kind of see the movement of the passage where it sits. So in chapter 11, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And in chapter 11, we began the last few days of Jesus's life. He rode into Jerusalem. He was uh, kind of recognized as a Davidic Messiah of sorts. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we have Jesus doing a lot of teaching and he's actually been pronouncing judgment. He's been pronouncing judgment upon the temple and upon the religious leaders. Uh, And as in chapters 11, we've seen Jesus simultaneously rise in popularity The people have been amazed at his teaching and he's growing popular with them while at the same time there's rising tension between him and the religious leaders who are growing in their hatred of Jesus. They at this point want to put Jesus to death. Chapter 13 where we were last week, Jesus prophesies about the destruction of the temple and also about the destruction of Jerusalem amongst some other things. And I've labeled this out with the old, in with the new. Chapter 13 kind of functions as a pivot point between chapters 11 and 12 and where we are today in chapter 14 because today we start the beginning of the passion narratives which are the recordings of Jesus's suffering and death. So we start the passion narratives and this is the method for the the new way. In chapter 13, Jesus is essentially saying the way by which people have come to know God through the temple, through the priesthood, through this religious system, it's not going to be that way anymore. Now there's going to be a new way, which is going to happen by the death of Christ. And so we start those stories today and we'll be in those stories through the end of Mark. And I just want to draw your attention to the unique opportunity we have this year because our teaching series aligns with the season. We're in the season of Lent right now. And for uh, all the Sundays leading up to Easter Sunday, we'll finish Mark on Easter Sunday, the resurrection chapter. We're going to be studying about Jesus' suffering and his death, his, his movement towards the cross. And so let that just stir in you. Take the opportunity. The fact that our teachings align so well is kind of a unique opportunity for us to be reflecting and meditating upon the significance of Christ's death. So with that, we are going to first look at the literary structure of this passage. Mark has written this passage using a specific literary technique and it's important for us to uh, see what he's doing because it will help us get some of the themes going on in this passage. If you have been with us through our series in Mark, you have experienced this before. It's called a Markin sandwich. Uh, The formal name for it is an intercalation. And if you need a refresher on what that is or you're new with us, essentially what a Markin sandwich is, is it's a literary style with which Mark will start a story and then he'll interrupt that story by inserting a seemingly unrelated story and then he'll return back to the first story. So it happens in generally three parts. That's why it's called a sandwich, like two pieces of bread and you know the meat in the middle. And uh, when Mark does this, he actually wants these two stories to help mutually interpret one another. Often they're filled with contrasts or comparisons or uh, some themes that we can kind of see, oh, these are working together and they help us understand the significance of what he's trying to say. That's how verses work. 1 through, four, through 11 in chapter 14 are written. So you'll notice the outer portions of the Mark and Sandwich have to do with the themes of people uh, scheming uh, to betray and kill Jesus. Those are the outer portions. And then the inner portion is a seemingly unrelated story of a woman who comes and anoints Jesus in preparation for his burial. That's what Jesus uh, signifies this anointing to be. So we'll go to the next slide and we'll just look 
quickly at uh, the ways that these two segments, the outer portions and the inner portions, are contrasting with each other. We're gonna see scheming, hatred, and selfishness in the outer portions contrasted with an extravagant display of devotion. We're gonna see contrasted social positions. In the outer portions, we have uh, males who are religious leaders or people who are on Jesus' inner circle, Judas being one of them. These are the insiders, uh, the people of privilege, contrasted with someone who's an outsider. She's an unnamed woman, and in this culture, the women had a lower social status with the men. So we've got a contrast there. We are gonna see people who should know Jesus, but they miss him, contrasted with an unlikely person who actually sees him. We'll see betrayal coming from the inside, both within the religious system and within Jesus' closest group of friends, contrasted with adoration from the outside. We'll see wrong priorities contrasted with right priorities. We'll see Jesus' death by the hands of the insiders contrasted with Jesus actually showing that his death is by his own power. So all of these together, we'll go to the next slide, help us think about some of the themes that are happening in these 11 verses. First, those who should know Jesus miss him but he's recognized by the outsiders. We have seen this over and over and over again in Mark. Jesus is frequently missed by those who should see him, who've had the privilege to see him, and yet the humble, the unlikely recognize him. We'll see hatred and blindness contrasted with love and extravagant devotion. And lastly, this is a, the centrality of Jesus's death in this passage. Jesus' death is at the center point of all three of these pieces of the Mark and Sandwich, the plots to betray and kill him, and then this woman's act of devotion, Jesus reinterprets it and, like, and, and associates it with his death. So with that being said, we're gonna now go through the passage a couple verses at a time and analyze it. And before we do, I just want to say and encourage you, um, this is a very emotional scene. I'm sure you got some of the picture of that as Lori read it for us. There's a lot of emotion happening here and it will be advantageous for us if we can activate our imaginations and imaginatively experience this story. Picture yourself there. Picture the sounds, picture uh, what's happening, picture maybe the smells, how you might feel if you were experiencing this and it will help us engage with the passage. So we're gonna start and we're gonna read verses one to two. This is the first part of our Mark and Sandwich. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Mark starts this, pa this passage, he starts the passion narratives with a time marker. But he's not just giving us a time marker to give us a time marker. It's an important time marker, but there's actually some symbolism and foreshadow in what's going on in the festival and the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. And specifically for us, we're gonna talk a little bit about the Passover because if we understand what the Jews were celebrating during the Passover, we're gonna understand some of what Mark wants us to associate as we look at Jesus go um, to the cross to give his life. So the Passover was celebrated every year by the Jews. It was a pilgrim festival. So people traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this. So the population was, uh, was very full. It was like three times the amount of people in Jerusalem. And what they were commemorating was, if we think all the way back to the book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, they're commemorating this amazing, historic, monumental moment for them where they were enslaved in Egypt. They were being oppressed by the Pharaoh in Egypt. And they were crying out to God, God, do you see? see us. 
Do you, do you remember us? You promised you were gonna make us into this great nation and give us this land and here we are, we're oppressed. Well, God does see them and eventually he's going to deliver them. So he raises up Moses to be a deliverer for them. And through Moses, God is having a showdown with Pharaoh, essentially enacting multiple signs and wonders that increase in intensity to try to get Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave to go and worship God. Well, Pharaoh, it doesn't work out so well for him because he continues to harden his heart in stubbornness. Um, and so God, and the final sign that God does is he's gonna kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, it's hard for me to say that and breeze over it without talking about that because that feels slightly ethically complicated to just leave that hanging there. But I have to tell you, we don't have time to talk about that this morning, but it is actually, um, it's a difficult story, but it's an amazing story really actually riddled with God's grace. Um, so we need to just remember though that, that God's gonna kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. So God tells Moses to tell the Israelites that when this act of judgment happens, if they wanna be spared, and really anyone who wants to be spared, they need to take a lamb without blemish, kill it, and take its blood and put its blood on the doorposts of their house, on the top and on the sides of the doorposts. And when God was gonna come and he was gonna kill the firstborn, he would pass over any house that had this blood as a marking, and, and then they would be spared from this act of judgment. Well, God doing this sign and wonder, killing the firstborn in Egypt, finally causes Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. They go, they cross through the Red Sea, and it's, it's a huge moment because God then establishes them as a nation. He establishes them as his covenant people. He's going to be faithful to them. They are going to follow him and try their best to be faithful to him. He gives them the law, which is to show them this is what it looks like to follow me and this is how you are to represent me to the world. This is a huge moment for the Israelites. So they remember this every year. And the themes of the Passover are that God is a redeemer who redeems them from oppression. So we can go to the next slide. We can see here how the Passover, the themes of the Passover serve as a symbol and foreshadow to what Jesus is actually gonna do in his death. In the Passover, we have Israel in bondage and slavery. In Jesus's death, we see humanity who's in bondage and slavery, slavery to sin and slavery to death. We see the blood of a spotless lamb spares the Israelites from the judgment of God. And here we've got the blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus, who is called the lamb who was slain, that spares us from the judgment of God that we deserve. But instead we can be spared from that through the blood of Christ. We see in the Passover that God redeems Israel from oppression and Jesus's uh, death. Uh, God redeems humanity from oppression. And lastly, we see that in the Passover, God establishes, establishes Israel as his covenant people. In Jesus' death, anyone who puts their faith in Christ in his death and resurrection is now established as a part of God's covenant people. So the, the themes of this, uh, this uh, the Passover and the celebration are important as we think about Jesus going to his death. And Jesus is gonna mention some of those themes again in our passage next week. We're also told in these first two verses that the chief priests and the scribes want to secretly kill and arrest and kill Jesus. Well, why in secret? This time, the festival of the Passover was a very crowded 
time in Jerusalem. And uh, people would travel there for it. And we also know that it's a very religiously and nationally charged holiday. Remember, they're celebrating the fact that God set them free from an oppressor, a foreign oppressor. At this point in history, in the first century, we have the Jews living in Jerusalem underneath the oppression of the Romans. And historically, there had been some violent demonstrations, political demonstrations that would happen, especially when people would get together like this. So the Roman governor would move into Jerusalem during these feasts to establish his presence there to kind of manage the tension. And the chief priests in many ways are functioning a little bit as puppets of their Roman oppressors. They need to keep them appeased in order to keep their positions. And so they don't want to arrest Jesus during the feast because Jesus has been gaining popularity with the crowd. So they know if they arrest him, there's an opportunity for the people to potentially riot and they wanna avoid that from happening. So that's the first part of our Mark and Sandwich. Now we go to verse three, and this is the beginning of a new story. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. We're told Jesus is in Bethany. This is a village about two miles from Jerusalem, and he's in the house of Simon the leper. We don't know who Simon the leper is. Uh, Likely he's a supporter of Jesus and likely he's a previous leper. Otherwise he wouldn't be able to host this gathering in his house. And we're told that they're reclining at table. That's a reference to probably having a meal. So think of this like a dinner party. Then we're told an unnamed woman arrives on the scene and the way the language is written, it's likely she's not actually a part of this dinner party, but instead she intrudes and comes into the dinner party and she comes with an alabaster flask and then Mark slows us down with his language to express the expense. He says it's pure, it's nard, and he says it's very costly. So the alabaster flask in and of itself would have been costly. These were vessels that were reserved for holding the finest ointments and perfumes. And then nard is an herb that's native to India that would have been imported. This is not just any ointment or oil or perfume. It could kind of be translated as any of those things. It's not just anything standard. This is expensive. And then Mark tells us that it's pure. So he's raising the expense. And then he just flat out says this is very costly. It's extremely valuable. And what does she do? She comes into this party and she breaks open the jar and then she pours out its contents over Jesus' head. Most commentators believe that she didn't need to break the jar in order to open it, but instead what's happening is this is dramatic. It's intent. She is displaying a dramatic expression of devotion to Jesus. We don't really anoint in our culture often. Um, You can find references to anointings all throughout the Bible and we don't quite have time to unpack exactly what anointing means, but what's good to know is that you could anoint different people for different occasions. So you could do it to consecrate a priest or a king or a prophet. You could do it as a sign of hospitality or of devotion or of fellowship. But what's significant and different about this moment is the amount. You would not pour out the entire contents of something on someone's head to anoint them. This is excessive. So what are the woman's motivations in doing this? 
It's interesting, we don't really know. Mark doesn't quite tell us. Some people think maybe she's anointing him because she thinks he's the Messiah. It's possible. Other people disagree with that for various reasons. The reality is Mark doesn't tell us her motivation, but he leaves us with this picture of what happened, that this woman came and made an astounding act of devotion that was audacious, it was bold, it was risky, it was costly, and she gave it in devotion and adoration and love for Jesus. Now, I don't want us to miss the brazenness and the jarring nature of this scene. You have to understand that she's a woman, she's got lower social position, it would have been inappropriate for her to interrupt a meal like this, but she comes in and she does this. She breaks the jar, what was that like? That was dramatic. And she pours out all its contents on Jesus's head. I want you to think about yourself at a dinner party with your friends, and someone shows up who wasn't invited, and there's someone who makes you uncomfortable to be there. They shouldn't be there. They show up and then they do something like this. How would you feel? It should be a little bit of an uncomfortable scene for us to read. Verses four to five. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now, interestingly, Mark does not tell us who's present at this meal. He leaves all the characters except for Jesus and Simon the leper anonymous. And in doing that, he draws our attention away from specific individuals and towards the act itself and to the responses. And he tells us that some who were there, they had a strong and a negative reaction. Don't miss the language. It says they were indignant. Indignant means to be angry because you feel like something is unjust or unfair. And then it says that they scolded her. Okay, so picture that, they're scolding her. That word actually can be translated, it means to snort. It can be translated, they're growling. So this is like a lot of disdain for what she's done. And why do they feel this way? Well, Mark tells us this. It says that they're concerned about the poor, which I find interesting, because that's actually a noble and a pious cause. For the Jews, giving to the poor was very important to them because God had commanded them to do it. They had obligatory tithe to care for the poor and to care for the needy. And during the Passover, they observed almsgiving in a higher capacity. So potentially that's in their minds too. They're thinking it's Passover. Uh, she, this could have been given to the poor. We're supposed to be thinking about that. And Mark tells us how much this ointment was worth. He says it's over 300 denarii which doesn't mean much to us if we don't know what a denarii is, but a denar 300 denarii is a year's wages for a day laborer. A year's wages. Okay, pause and think about how much money that is in our modern context. I want you to think about how much good you could do with that kind of money. And now I want you to think about if someone came in and wasted something that was that expensive, how would you feel? I think we would probably feel similarly, even if we didn't express it outwardly, as to what's going on in this room, the people who are observing this action. Let's see what Jesus says in verses six to nine. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, 
wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This woman is being publicly scorned and Jesus comes to her defense. He comes to her aid. He honors her costly sacrifice. He sees what's going on here and he describes her act of devotion in these terms. She's done a beautiful thing. She has done what she could. He reinterprets her action by saying that she's anointed his body beforehand for burial. The Jews would anoint dead bodies with uh, spices and perfume uh, before they buried them to show them a sign of love and honor. And then Jesus memorializes her action by saying that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. And Jesus says something interesting and slightly troubling about the poor. He says, you will always have the poor with you. Essentially, you'll always be able to take care of the poor. But then he says, you will not always have me. I want us to slow down and think about a couple things going on in this segment. Uh, It's important for us to not misunderstand what's going here and to see what's actually happening. So first, what's going on with Jesus and the poor? If you're like me, uh, this passage has felt a little confusing to understand what Jesus is really saying here. It's important for us to not misunderstand what he's saying because this passage has been taken out of context and some have interpreted it to mean essentially you'll never get rid of poverty. You'll never be able to solve it. So therefore it's just better to worship God. But to do that would be to not only misunderstand Jesus's words in this passage, but to misunderstand all of Jesus's teaching, to misunderstand all the teaching of the Bible, to misunderstand God's heart. So Jesus, when he says this, he's actually echoing a passage from Deuteronomy 15. And that's a context that his hearers would have been familiar with. They would have heard it when Jesus said that. Now Deuteronomy 15 is a part of the law where God is giving his people his expectations for how they are supposed to treat one another and reflect him to the world, what their worship is supposed to look like. Uh, And I have to tell you that I have, um, I've struggled with the Old Testament law. I'm sure many of you feel the same. It can feel uh, heavy handed, it can feel uh, complicated, it can feel troublesome or uh, problematic even. I, I feel kind of like, I'm glad that I don't really need to know that. That's how I've thought about it in the past. But I have to tell you, I'm learning about the law right now. And one, it's essential for us to understand it. It's very important. And two, it is blowing my mind. Because as I'm learning about the law, I'm learning that it is actually incredibly gracious. And it's incredibly beautiful, especially when you understand how it's functioning in its historic context and read what it's actually saying. So here's an example. In the law, God has given responsibility to people who have wealth, who have resources, who have privilege, who have positions of power. They have a responsibility to use that in order to care for the people who don't to care for the marginalized, to care for the needy. The law actually has uh, written within it stipulations and boundaries placed upon people because of their power who could become potential abusers or who could exploit people. The law puts boundaries on that so that they can't do that. God is very concerned with creating a community where every human being is dignified as a member of God's family and really as representatives and God's image bearers. This is a community of generosity, of interdependence, of caring for one another. The law communicates those things. So in Deuteronomy 15, where Jesus is quoting, we're gonna see some of the things going on in this passage. So let's go to the slide. Verse one in Deuteronomy 15, verses one to three, uh, God is telling the Israelites that they're actually supposed to uh, cancel debts every seven years. So if someone owes you a debt 
and it's been, let's say, three years, but the seven-year cycle is coming, that seven-year hits, you set them free. That's it. They just get to go free. And what's amazing about this is this actually helps alleviate one of the components of systemic poverty amongst them. Okay, so you kind of already are starting to get the sense of this. Then God says something fascinating in verses four to six. He says, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey. And then he goes on. So essentially, what God is saying there is, if you obey, if you strictly obey all that I'm telling you, you won't have poor people among you, for I will richly bless you. Now the inverse of that, logically, is if you do not obey, you will have poor people among you. And God knows that the Israelites are not going to obey, so then he makes this concession regarding the poor in verse seven. We'll read this together. And as we read this, listen to God's heart for the needy and to the, for the poor. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Sound familiar? Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So you can see God's heart for them to care for the poor and the needy. And typically when the New Testament is citing the Old Testament, it happens frequently, you are supposed to import the context of the, the verse that's being cited in the New Testament to understand what's going on, how it's functioning. And that's, if we apply that principle here, we can take two takeaways from what Jesus is saying in, in Mark chapter 14. First, Jesus is not negating their responsibility to care for the poor. In fact, he affirms it. By invoking this law from Deuteronomy 15, he's affirming the fact that they have a responsibility to care for the poor. And second, you could take this as an ironic rebuke. Essentially, the fact that they have poor people among them is indicative of the fact that they have not been obeying God. They have been misrepresenting the heart of God, the very thing that Jesus has been railing upon the religious leaders for, especially in the last few chapters. So with all that being said, Jesus is not saying don't care about the poor. He very much cares about the poor. The poor, the needy, the marginalized, the vulnerable are very close to Jesus' heart. And a quick search throughout his teachings would reveal that too. We remember just from Mark chapter 10 when Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. So in light of the entire scripture's tradition, I wish we had time to do more of a survey about God's intense passion for his people to care for the needy. What Jesus ends up saying here is actually quite shocking. So Jesus at this moment, on that day when he's in that room and that woman is anointing him, is living in a historic and a localized moment where something so monumental and so unique is about to happen that it deserves to be upheld above all things. Jesus connects this woman's extravagant act of devotion to his burial, to his coming death. 
So Jesus did not just come to help the needy, to heal the sick. He did do those things. But Jesus came to institute a new cosmic order to overthrow sin, Satan, death, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And he's going to do this by his death. And at this point, his death is now nearly at hand. This pivotal moment is worthy of extravagant worship. It brings us to discussing the centrality of Jesus' death in this passage. Jesus' death is in all three sections of our Mark and Sandwich. It's the through line that runs through it. And throughout Mark, Jesus has been predicting his death He's been saying that it's coming and now it's here. And likely this woman doesn't know that he's going to die. His disciples, who he's told over and over again that he's gonna die, they can't seem to get it. And to be fair, nobody thought the Messiah needed to die. It wasn't something that they understood or that they thought of. But what's significant about what Jesus says here is it affirms that he knows he's going to die. He knows. Jesus is in control. His life is is not being taken from him as the chief priests and the scribes and even Judas think they're participating in. Instead, Jesus is in control of his death. He's giving his life willingly. He's following God's sovereign plan that's gonna lead him to the cross to give his life up on behalf of the sins of the world to redeem humanity. It's the reason he came and the moment is now near. Jesus says of the woman, she has done what she could. If you translate that literally, it actually says kind of woodenly, what she had, she did. What she had, she did. And that helps us get the sentiment about what's going on here. This woman had this expensive ointment and she gave it to Jesus as an act of devotion. It parallels the story of the poor widow from Mark chapter 12, the end of Mark 12, who came to the offering and just gave two mere copper coins into the offering. And that was contrasted against the the big gifts that other people were giving out of their wealth. And Jesus, what does he do? He honors the widow's offering despite how much it was because it cost her something. She gave and it cost her. The same with this woman, she's giving something and it cost her and Jesus sees it and he honors it. I find this very encouraging when we think about our own lives and the quiet sacrifices sometimes we make for Christ, that Christ sees them and he honors them. He knows the cost to us. Jesus also says that this woman's deeds will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. This tells us that Jesus knows that his death is gonna lead to a resurrection that will lead to a message of hope that will be preached throughout the entire world. And Jesus says this will be uh, memorialized, but what's interesting is that we don't know her name. Her name is not memorialized. What's memorialized is her action. And in doing so, Jesus draws us away from this woman and toward the, the worthiness of Christ to receive such a sacrifice. It pushes us to see the glory of God on display through Christ's death. Let's return to the last part of our Mark and Sandwich here. And um, this, is, this is a chilling and upsetting contrast to the story we just saw. Verses 10 to 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
So just a couple things to say here. Judas is one of the 12. He's on Jesus's inner circle, closest group of friends. Judas has spent years traveling with Jesus, learning from Jesus, uh, ministering with Jesus, living with Jesus. And Mark gives us, similarly to the woman, no motive for why Judas betrays Jesus, which is a little bit of a bummer, it'd be nice to know. But in doing so, he leaves it open-ended to recognize that someone who was close to Jesus had the capacity to betray him. And it causes us to have to reflect on our own selves. We have the capacity to betray Jesus. The chief priests, it says, are pleased to take Jesus secretly. Now they have an opportunity with insider information from one of Jesus' own people, how they can seize him secretly, quietly, without causing a riot from the crowd. And I find this contrast striking. Judas betrays Jesus, and what does he receive? He receives money. What a stark contrast to the woman who gave an exorbitant financial sacrifice in devotion to Christ. So this is our story for the morning. It's a disturbing juxtaposition of both priorities of devotions. We see a humble and a steadfast Jesus who is willingly taking his life to the cross on behalf of the world. And we see him missed by those who are closest to him, those who have been privileged to know him. And yet we see him recognized, adored by those who are unlikely, by the humble, by the outcasts. So what do we do with a passage like this? What do we walk away with? I've got four quick thoughts for us to think through. First, is simply to behold Jesus, to see him. We have been confronted throughout Mark with different responses to Jesus. And our passage today is no different. It begs us to ask the question, will we see Jesus for who he is? Will we worship him for who he is? Will we acknowledge the significance of his death? Or will we harden our hearts in stubbornness, in selfishness, and instead act in our own self-interest? Second, is simply to not criticize others' demonstrations of worship. In this passage, we have a woman who is doing an extravagant act of devotion to Jesus, and what do we see? She gets judged by the people around her, and yet, she's the one who has it right. I think it's just a good reminder for us to not judge how other people are worshiping God, to let that be between them and God, and we focus on ourselves. Is my heart, or our hearts, geared towards God? Third, is to consider the cost of the sacrifice. This was a huge sacrifice for this woman to give. I don't get the sense that she had another one of these at home. The the way the story reads, it's a full sacrifice, costly sacrifice that she gave to Christ. I wonder how did this affect her life afterwards? What was it like for her to not have this? Was this financial security? Did she suffer in the future as a result of not having this? We don't know. But the cost of her sacrifice, it reminds us that Jesus is worthy of everything. And her costly sacrifice being poured out upon the head of Jesus is a foreshadow of the most costly sacrifice of Jesus Christ who will pour out his blood on behalf of saving the world from their sins. Jesus fully gave himself for us and I wonder, are we willing to give for him? Lastly, 
is to ask the question, what does it look like for us to sacrifice to Christ, to worship him extravagantly now? See, that woman was living in a particular moment where she had the physical Jesus in front of her. Jesus even says, you will not always have me with you. So this is a particular thing happening at that moment. We don't have the physical Jesus in front of us anymore. He's ascended to heaven. We await his return. So in the meantime, what does it look like for us to extravagantly worship him in devotion? Well, the Bible tells us that a life that has been transformed by the love of Christ is a life that is lived increasingly in love towards other people. Jesus summed up all of the law, all of the prophets by saying, love God and love other people. Loving others is the way by which we love God. And here's a few verses that will help us think through this. First John four says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Romans 12, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. First John three, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. James 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And we could go on and on and on and on of the verses that speak like this. Ironically, at the end of our passage this morning, we return back to Jesus's words in the middle. And we remember that by caring for the poor, the needy, the marginalized, the people who are vulnerable, we are worshiping God. It's very close to his heart. He expects his people to care for one another, both within our church family and for the people in the community. And I have to say, I have been very convicted in preparing for this message. And honestly, if I were to be honest with you, there's a little part of me that doesn't wanna be up here teaching this message because I don't wanna be held accountable to this because this is uncomfortable. This is uh, convicting and stirring. It's much easier for me to think about my worship to God to be in a safe paradigm that I know it whether that's worshiping him through song or through my prayers, asking God that I might know him more or praying for people I know or experiencing God in relationships or searching out the scriptures and understanding what that means. All of those things are good and they're all important. And yet it's very uncomfortable for me to think about my worship being laying down my life on behalf of other people. And at times on behalf of people who might be uncomfortable for me to love. And yet that's the very thing the Bible tells us God desires from us is to love in that kind of a way because it models what Christ has done. We walk and we imitate Christ and we remember his selflessness. So as we close, Fullerton Free, may our worship not just be in word or in speech, but in actions in deeds. May we give our lives for the sake of revealing God. The centrality of Jesus' death that's found in this passage reminds us that Jesus gave his life. It's more costly than anything we could ever give. And Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our worship.
He's tasked us with being his representatives on the earth, bringing healing to our neighbors, caring for the needs of the people in our community here and in our cities, in our communities around, to look out for the marginalized, to look out for the vulnerable. This is God's heart. It's the worship he wants us to give him. And so I ask, are we willing to do it? Let me pray for us. Father, this is a very convicting passage. It is, um, yeah, it's easy to just feel the ways we struggle and maybe even feel resistant to this. And I first and foremost thank you that you are so gracious, that you have so much space for us to be in process and that you're faithful to us. And so we ask in your grace, in your mercy, and with your kindness that you would transform us to embody this more and more, to love people more and more, to worship you extravagantly by living selflessly, by looking out for the needs of others, not just for the needs of our ourselves. God, transform our community and we thank you for the gift of your son. Jesus, we thank you for willingly giving your life for each one of us so that we could have resurrection life with you for eternity, so that we can have hope. We praise you, we see you, and we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.